letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. So then, remember that at one time, you Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a cornerstone. In him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. This is the word of God for the people of God. This author in this letter to the Ephesians is talking about a divide that he is living through, that he has experienced. The divide is between the Gentiles and the Jews, or the Gentile Christians and the Jewish believers, and there's hostility hanging in the air, attention, if you will. But he says unity is possible. Unity is possible in Christ Jesus. It is possible through Christ that the hostility between the two groups is put to death rather than putting those on the other side to death. This text gives us a strategy for dealing with conflict in many different settings. The strategy is based not on what we do, but this author says what God has already done. God has done something in Christ that makes this peace and this reconciliation a very real possibility. This author outlines the conflict, looks at the conflict, then asks the question, I put it in your outline, Who did Christ come to reconcile to God? Or put another way, who is included in God's favor or God's family? And of course, the way we usually read Scripture as Christians, we say, well, of course, it's us. We're the ones included. If there's a battle going on here, we are the winners. We are God's chosen people. But that's not the answer Ephesians gives. Ephesians gives a surprising answer to me, a challenging biblical answer, and says that God is working with both groups. That God did not choose one group over another, but that God wants the two groups to be reconciled with each other and for both groups 
to live in love with him and to live in love with each other. Is that a surprising answer to you? As I read through this in preparation for the sermon, I thought this is radical. This is a biblical answer and a strategy for peace, a strategy to deal with conflict, but it's not the one that we typically choose. It seems to me our human nature is to choose either or, winners and losers. But Ephesians says there's another way. And the other way is opened up because of what God has done for us in Christ. Would our world be better if we thought both and rather than either or? That's the question Ephesians raises for us today. As I was working on the sermon, I thought of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies. Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. That's a different way. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Live in love with those with whom you disagree. Now this is hard to apply to international relations, although there are lots of Christian groups trying to do that very thing. But I think it will be more profitable for us if primarily we think about this text as guidance for us in our interpersonal relationships. Oh, maybe in our interfaith relationships, which is the issue the author is dealing with. But you can think of any group that you might feel a little hostility toward or person. Groups that have oppositional views. So often those discussions degenerate quickly into hate-filled speech and become ever more divisive. So choose whatever group applies to you and see if Ephesians doesn't have some help because this author is saying there's reconciliation that needs to happen between us and God but also between each other across the human race in this series tending the new creation we've been talking about ever since Easter Sunday what does it mean as real people for us to live in the light of the resurrection if God has done something spectacular in the resurrection and the result of that is, may, is that we are a new creation, then what will that look like in terms of how we live? And we've been looking at different aspects of that these last eight weeks. Today's the last Sunday as we come to this letter to the Ephesians to look at these different aspects of what it would mean for us if in fact our central identity was that we are children of God that we are followers of Christ. If that's our central identity and that makes us a new creation in Christ, then what will that look like for our day-to-day -day living? And Ephesians says, part of tending the new creation is for us to be peacemakers. That we're called to be peacemakers as a new creation in Christ. In verse 14, the author says, Christ is our peace. And goes on in 15 to say, even to make a broader statement that God is creating a new humanity and taking groups that were divided from one another and putting them together, thus making peace, tearing down the dividing wall of hostility in between groups that have been oppositional. 
Really, the author is writing at two different levels here in Ephesians. The first idea is that, of course, that Christ reconciles us to God by showing us the amazing grace of God. And that it comes to us through the blood of Christ. Did you hear him talk about that in verse 13? Right after he's given us this very stark description of what life is like without Christ, then he says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That God has done something through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus that changes everything it gives us a new lens through which to look a lens through one who's willing to suffer and die on behalf of humanity it reveals a kind of love that is unstoppable that will go to any length that can reach you in life and death and life beyond death it's a new relationship with god through christ it is what God does for us, sometimes called justification or justifying grace or salvation. It's what God has done for us in Christ. The second part of the peace of Christ and this dimension of reconciliation, which is causing the hostility between people to dissipate and disappear. If our identity is in Christ, the author says, then the typical barriers, whether it's class or race or ethnicity, whether it's one opinion or another, whatever it is that typically we allow to be an obstacle or a barrier between extending God's love to someone else, that all of those barriers are transcended because our identity or our unity is in Christ Jesus. Because we are part of the family of God as followers of Christ. That love transforms us and transcends those barriers. It's what God is doing in us. Wesley called it sanctifying grace. God is working in us to make us ever more into the image and likeness of Christ in our day-to-day -day living. Reminded me of the saying, there is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Or that quote by Abraham Lincoln he says the best way to destroy an enemy is to make him a friend. It's a new way to think about how we deal with conflict as Christians. I've been telling you about this book, Gardening Mercies, by Laura Keeler. She writes this book. It's full of ideas about how to grow living things, plants in your garden, flowers, vegetables, and the like. But she also is put in each chapter some ideas about how we might grow as a new creation ourselves, how we might grow in faith. In one chapter, she talks about this friend of hers. She said, we're friends, but we have a little bit different ideas about religion. This friend is a part of a group that is clear that they have found the only correct prescription for salvation. So she says, if you agree with them and take the steps they want you to take and do it the way you want them, they want you to do it, then you are in. But if you vary from that at all, then they'll just tell you straight out, you're going to hell. It's all over for you. If you don't agree with us, we've got the right answer. So if you have a different one, you are wrong. But she says once 
right after she was talking with that friend, she was thinking about the scene of Jesus being crucified with thieves or bandits on either side. And she said, you know, that one thief looked at Jesus and made a desperate plea and said, remember me. She says, you know, this thief didn't have a written tract on what steps to take to get saved. Didn't have a chance to come down the aisle at a church or in a crusade and profess faith. Didn't have opportunity to go in a confession booth and confess their sin and be made right with God. She said all they had was a view that Jesus had some authority and power that could help them. And the thief said, remember me. And she says, you know what Jesus did? You remember what Jesus did, she says? Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Not after you repent for a while and show me that you really mean it. Or take a class and agree with us or join a certain church. But Jesus says, today. Today you will be with me in paradise. She said, did you ever notice that in that gospel passage there's not even a mention that the thief ever repented? And yet Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. It's the grace of God being offered to him and to us without price extending the peace of christ can be a challenging thing so often we want to put our own limits on it do it our way agree with me but ephesians says god has already taken care of that that god has done that in christ and now gives us the opportunity to be a part of that at annual conference this year Bishop Hayes took a few moments during the report of the Board of Church and Society and said, I'm going to extend a special invitation to you. He said, I've asked this board to work through the summer to present a series of conversations I want us to have in the fall. He said, there is an issue that's plaguing the church and we're not doing very well in terms of how we deal with it. He said, I think we can do better. I would like for us to behave in a more Christ-like manner around this issue. Can you guess what issue he chose? The complexities of human sexuality, he said. He said, we need to do better around our discussion about the complexities of human sexuality. And I want you all to be thinking about it. And we're going to convene a series of conversations across the state. I hope some of you will come Ephesians gives us a strategy today in terms of how we might conduct ourselves when we come to a place where we know that we do not all agree. But that so often the discussion like that becomes divisive and filled with emotion so quickly that it just moves from discussion to attack and becomes hate-filled speech often to another brother or sister in Christ. I'm going to write a series of articles. I've been thinking about this for a while. I'm going to write a series of articles 
sharing how we as United Methodists can think deeply about these issues without putting up a dividing wall of hostility between us, as our text says today? Is there a way for us to have discussion of issues on which we disagree and still act as if we live in the likeness of Christ? In Methodist history, we know that we haven't always agreed on everything. In fact, we have a long history in Methodism of people taking a stance against any number of issues, slave trading, smuggling, alcohol, unjust treatment of prisoners, unjust imprisonment of people. Our book of discipline is our guidebook. It talks to us about this whole history of who we are as Methodists, and not only as Methodists, but as the Christian church, and what to do if we disagree. Listen to how it lays out this history. I want to read you a few sentences. We acknowledge that because we are a living body of believers gathered together by God from many diverse segments of the human community, unanimity of belief, opinion, practice, has never been characteristic of the church from the beginning to this day. From its earliest time, as evidenced in the letters of Paul, the witness of the Gospels, the Acts of the Apostles, and other New Testament texts, diversity of understanding and controversy with regard to many matters has been the reality. Therefore, whenever significant differences of opinion among faithful Christians occur, some of which continue to divide the church deeply today, neither surprise nor dismay should be allowed to separate the members of the body from one another. So we have a history of not always agreeing, of having differences of opinion within the church as a whole and within, within our denomination. But our book of discipline also suggests a, a way that we might try in terms of how we relate to each other. See what you think about this. It suggests this. We commit ourselves to stand united in declaring our faith that God's grace is available to all, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. In that confidence, we pledge to continue to be in respectful dialogue with those with whom we disagree, to explore the sources of our differences, to honor the sacred worth of all persons and to tell the truth about our divisions as we continue to seek the mind of Christ and to do the will of God in all things. I think those sentences are a pretty clear and cogent summary of what the author of Ephesians is saying to those people who have some hostility between them, and perhaps it's a word for us as well today. I will leave you with this question John Wesley asked when he was writing about some differences of opinion in his day. I've put it in your outline. He says, though we cannot think alike, may we not love alike. Though we cannot think alike, may we not love alike. And he gives his answers in his writing, and he says, without all doubt, we may. Without all doubt, or as we would say, without any doubt, we may love alike within the body of Christ.
May it be so for all of us today. Amen. And thanks be to God.